Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, some people get offended when you use the word retarded. Even if it's to describe somebody with mental handicaps that we once called retardation. There are entire groups out there dedicated to putting a stop to all of that. Now, I'm just going to be honest. I won't join in on any of this. For one thing, I'm as close as anybody to this issue, and I dare say closer than most. But for another thing, telling other people what to say and what not to say, it's wrong, it's un-American, it's really annoying. And oh yeah, it's retarded. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. No! Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Hello, and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I usually talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, but lately it's been all movies, all the time. And the reason for that's rather simple, too. Truth is, I've spent the majority of this podcast talking about comic books, so why not change things up a little bit? I figured I should probably talk about some movies. And not just movies, but sequels. And not just sequels, but sequels that I think have gotten a really unfair reputation. Either because people want to believe they're better than they actually are, or because they're lumps of shit that everybody's afraid to call a lump of shit. Superman 2, I'm looking pretty much right in your direction. Anyway, pretty much I wanted to use these episodes to set the record straight about a lot of movie sequels. And I think I've done an amazing job of it too, because each episode's been more face-rocking and awesome than the last. Now, here's the thing. Under most circumstances, a miniseries like this would last six episodes, but... This movie sequel thing is only going to last for five episodes because coming soon is my epic, epic, epic 50th episode. You guys just wouldn't believe how freaking long my 50th episode is. I've already got a rough cut of episode 50 in the can. If I told you how awesome it is, you'd probably assume I'm lying because this much awesome in one episode is damned near unprecedented. But anyway... For this episode, I've decided to tackle a subject that the jury long ago reported in for. As ever, I don't expect all of you to agree with me. Because, I gotta tell you, I've become accustomed to being the lone voice in the wilderness about a lot of fan stuff. Still, all I'm asking for here is that you hear me out. All of which is a sort of 
roundabout way of introducing the topic at hand, which is the Matrix sequels. That is to say, the Matrix Reloaded and the Matrix Revolutions. Now, I've always had a bit of a fixation for the Matrix sequels. Now, as with a few other sequels in the series, conventional wisdom says that The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions are substandard. That they somehow undermine the originality and dignity of the first film. And, to put it plainly, they suck. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I'm not going to try to change your mind if you think they're crap. That's your thing. Choice. The problem is choice. But, for some reason, I just keep coming back to them. And this is especially true of The Matrix Revolutions, the third one. When Revolutions opens, the heroes are in a real pickle. Zion, the last human city, is like two seconds away from absolute destruction. Neo's comatose because he somehow used his powers in the real world, which isn't even supposed to be possible. The Sentinels destroyed Morpheus's ship, not to mention a bunch of others, and worst of all, the prophecy concerning Neo ending the war appears to be a total hoax created by the Oracle to keep the Rebels under control. So, all in all, that's not a bad way to start the third movie in any trilogy, if you ask me. Now, people say there's no real character development in the sequels, and I find that an amazingly absurd statement. When the Merovingian says he wants the eyes of the Oracle, Morpheus, who, lest we forget, is still stinging from being used by her, Morpheus looks like he's just about ready to shake hands with the devil and pop out some eyeballs. He never would have dreamed of doing something like that in the first movie, back when he still had his borderline dogmatic faith in the prophecy. During The Matrix and The Matrix Reloaded, Morpheus was what some people might call a religious fundamentalist when it comes to Neo, the prophecy, the Oracle, and all that stuff. But by the beginning of The Matrix Revolutions, he's lost his faith. Everything that he thinks shouldn't be possible is happening right in front of his eyes. But moreover than that, the prophecy's bullshit, the Oracle's a liar, Neo's in the ICU, and the Sentinels are getting closer and closer to Zion all the time. So, by the time of Revolutions, Morpheus is aimless. He's trying his best to figure out just what the fuck to believe now that his religion's pretty much been totally taken away from him. He ultimately comes to stop believing in prophecies and religions and oracles, and instead he starts believing in his fellow man. Then... And only then is Morpheus able to truly make a difference in the war against the machines. And honestly, you could say similar things about other characters, too. By the climax of the first film, you get the impression that Neo believes his mandate is to end the war by destroying the machines, grinding them beneath his heel. But... As the trilogy progresses, it's easy for the viewer to see just how unrealistic that goal truly is. The rebels are outnumbered, outgunned, and outflanked. In the end, Neo's job changes. It has to change. His job goes from being all about laying waste to the machines and instead becomes all about suing for peace. This is the only way 
to end the war with the machines. Neo strikes a bargain with the machines and be pretty much brokers a peace treaty. Interestingly enough, he pretty much uses the exact same method to defeat Smith. I mean, yeah, Neo could fight Smith to the death, sure, but what would that really accomplish? Surrendering to Smith, in a way, and letting the machine mainframe balance itself out is the path to true victory. And the thing is, it's a choice that Neo would have been intellectually, emotionally, and psychologically incapable of making in the first film. Neo originally set out wanting to beat the shit out of the machines, but what he eventually discovers is that the machines aren't his enemies. Humans and the machines are alienated from one another. That's the problem. One side exerting absolute dominance over the other just hasn't accomplished a whole lot so far. In fact, one side or the other being in complete control pretty much so far has only led to war and bondage. There's got to be another way. Now, yes, a peace treaty doesn't give audiences the visceral James Bond-style you know, defeat of the villain and fiery destruction of his headquarters. But at the same time, a peace treaty is the more honest and more plausible ending. The rebels couldn't, and I would argue shouldn't, destroy the machines. Ultimately, both sides need each other in order to thrive. Neo has to learn all this for himself. And again, it only comes about when he realizes that the prophecy is total horseshit. The only time Neo truly manages to accomplish anything Basically, when he stops trying to be a superhero or the messiah and just tries to be one man doing his best to rescue his people. And um, people? That's not only character development, it's character growth. And then there's Smith himself. Remember his rant about hating the Matrix in the first movie? About how he hates the smell? If there is such a thing? In the first film, Smith hates the Matrix. He hates being there. He hates humans. He hates his job. He hates everything. But then, Neo fucks Smith up real good at the end of the first movie, and Smith's, ex uh, Smith's expected to turn himself in for deletion. But he doesn't. Instead, Smith goes into hiding. Rather than hating the place, the Matrix becomes his new home and reloaded. In fact, it's even more than that. Smith treats the Matrix like it's his personal Disneyland in Reloaded. He pops in and out, he stirs up trouble for the rebels and the machines everywhere he goes, and pretty much he causes as much chaos as he possibly can. That progresses even more in Revolutions, where Smith becomes determined to take over the entire Matrix. And he does a pretty good job of it, too. By the time Neo makes his deal with the machines to take Smith down in exchange for peace, which is to say brokers the peace treaty, Smith's taken over pretty much the entire computerized world of the Matrix. What does that tell you? What does it say about Smith and his experiences he's had that 
he proclaims the Matrix to be his world, quote unquote, at the end of Revolutions. Smith goes from hating the Matrix in the first film to treating it like it's his own private playground in Reloaded to being bent on conquering it in Revolutions. And these things are not contradictory. Each character, Smith and all the rest, each character grows and matures and changes through each film. What the Wachowski brothers did in all three movies was give you the pieces. But here's the thing. They expect you to put, uh, to put the pieces together all on your own. And so, look, I really hate playing the, you know, if you don't like it, you don't get it card. Because, let's face it, that's usually a big cop-out. But I kind of think there's something to that when it comes to the Matrix sequels. And as far as people not getting it, maybe that's partly the Wachowski brothers' fault. People went into the sequels expecting one thing, but they got something else altogether. On top of that, the Wachowski brothers never took a single moment to explain just what the fuck this all means. They intentionally kept room open for individual interpretation because, for whatever reason, they didn't want to be didactic and spell everything out. The problem there is that a lot of modern audiences just don't want that from action films, which ultimately is what the Matrix movies are. And the Merovingian's a good example of what I'm talking about here. We get a sense of his personality and lust for power in the few scenes that he appears in, but we don't really know all that much about who the Merovingian is as a character. Now, there's a sense in which his personal history is kind of superfluous to the story at hand. If you want to believe that the Merovingian was the one in a former version of the Matrix and he somehow became corrupted, you can. If you want to if you want to think that he's just just another program from the machine world who's gotten way too independent, you can. Now me, I think the Merovingian is the primary operating system from an older version of the Matrix. Later on, we're going to talk about the different versions of the Matrix and all that jazz, but for now, I'll just say that there was a version of the Matrix that was designed to be more realistic and less utopian, but there are two crucial differences between that version of the Matrix and the one that we see in all three of the Matrix films. First, as the Matrix Reloaded suggests, this older version of the Matrix was kind of like a, a horror movie with monsters and shit running around. But second and more importantly, the element of choice hadn't been introduced yet. That version of the Matrix was a world of control built on controls. And the Merovingian was in personal control of everything. He misses that. He wants it back. I think the Merovingian was the operating system for that version of the Matrix. But here's the thing. None of that stuff matters to the Merovingian's usage in the films. The Wachowski brothers shouldn't need to put the narrative on hold for 10 or 15 minutes to spell out everything about the Merovingian in order for him to function effectively as a character. As a matter of fact, 
I'd say we probably know about as much uh, about the Merovingian as we do Grand Moff Tarkin. Hell, Tarkin probably drives more of the plot of Star Wars than the Merovingian does the Matrix Reloaded. And yet, I don't hear anybody complain about Tarkin's abject lack of character development and a personal biography for his character. And honestly, this all holds true for a lot of other Matrix characters too. We know what we need to know about them. Nothing more, nothing less. Other stuff. One gripe a lot of people have is that the Matrix sequels just seem to be full of fights and car chases that ultimately don't move the story forward. And I gotta be honest, I don't think that's a totally valid criticism. It's not totally true either, but no matter how you look at it, the narrative comes to a screeching halt during those huge action, uh, action scenes. My answer to that is, Reloaded and Revolutions don't do that any more often, and they don't do it any worse than the first film. But something else here is, again, these are martial arts action movies. The Wachowskis had to deliver a lot of fights and stuff, and they knew it. So why prolong the inevitable? But is it really fair to say that nothing important happens during those scenes? That nothing is really illustrated or expressed about the characters? I don't think so. Just before meeting with the Oracle in The Matrix Reloaded, Neo bumps into Seraph. And then Neo and Seraph fight for a while until Seraph becomes convinced that Neo is indeed the one. But here's the thing. Neo is the one. So why couldn't he beat Seraph to a bloody pulp during the tea house fight? After meeting the Oracle, Neo gets ambushed by that legion of Smith copies. Again, Neo's the one. So why did Neo struggle so much with the fight? Here's the thing. Neo and the audience have both assumed a lot of the wrong things about Neo. Neo and the audience have both gotten a very wrong impression of Neo's powers and abilities. Neo's assumed he can take on anybody, anytime. But his fights with Seraph and the Smith uh, clones show us that maybe Neo's not as all-powerful as everybody's assumed. Neo fights Seraph to a standstill, and when it's all done, nothing's really happened. Neo then fights that horde of Smith copies, and nothing's really changed as a result of the brawl. Nothing happens. Nothing changes. During or after either fight, and that's the entire point. Neo's assumed he's unstoppable and infallible, but within about 10 minutes, he's shown just how limited he truly is. Now, for my money, there was something that got lost in the sequels. A famous joke by George Lucas goes that when you can't afford to build a complete set, turn out the lights. I think that lesson is pretty clearly evident in the first Matrix film. It was a pretty low-budget movie, and the, no the kind of noir atmosphere makes 
shots like Neo meeting the rebels in the alley during the rain just ooze atmosphere. But things like that are, they're pretty much absent from the sequels. The darkness of the first film kind of gives a sense of mystery and intrigue that I think the sequels really could have benefited from. But the sequels had a much bigger budget. The lights are on. And that harsh, bright light of the sequels, it, let's face it, it, it does clash a good bit with the darkness and atmosphere of the first Matrix movie. Now, I think it's small potatoes in the grand scheme of things, but it's, it's still worth mentioning. Here's, here's the point. In general, I think history's gonna look back kindly on the Matrix trilogy for at least attempting to be a thinking man's action science fiction trilogy. The Matrix trilogy with its layers upon layers of, of myth and philosophy and obscure references and symbolism and all that other stuff may not be everybody's brand of vodka, but you kind of have to admire the effort and vision the Wachowski brothers put into it. After all these years, I think I'm making my peace with it. Because I choose to. Anyway, enough of that. Time for a break. Be right back after these messages. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners and the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this Ultra... Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the relatively geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. Grom, I have never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, will remember if we were good men or bad. Why we bought, why we sold on eBay. All that matters is that 50 cent Captain Kirk Migo action figure. That's what's important. Cheapness pleases you, Grom. 
So grab me one request. Grab me the fruit of Suburbia's garage sales. Let me drive those dealers away from that box of records and hear the lamentations of the children as I buy their Star Wars toys for a quarter. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you! Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I make my living going to garage sales and then selling the junk I find on eBay. That's right, just like those assholes on TV. You can hear a podcast all about it where I tell you about all the good junk I got, how I sold it, give you tips, gripe, bitch, and moan, and even have friends come along with me. So check it out. It's called Garage Sale Gloat, and it can only be found at twotruefreaks.com, which is, of course, the home of the Two True Freaks Network. Duh. This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all, an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by the war. This July 28th, In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, presents All Quiet on the Western Front. I'm Tom Panneries, and to commemorate the centennial of the First World War, I will be dedicating a special episode to Eric Maria Remarque's all-time classic war novel. Along with the look at the novel, I will discuss two film adaptations, and then take a quick glance at poetry and songs of the war to end all wars. That's this July 28th, at incountry.potomatic.com. as I continue my discussion about the Matrix sequels. So, okay. Maybe the sequels aren't so bad. Exactly what the fuck are they about? Well, very simply, the Matrix sequels are concerned with the Rebels being caught in a reboot cycle of the Matrix. The entire thrust of the Matrix Reloaded revolves around the Rebels getting their hands on the Keymaker so that Neo can reach the Matrix's source. All Morpheus, Neo, and the rest know is that Neo going to the source will somehow save Zion. However, this is all part of the system's control. The architect reveals a lot of hard truths. And the sad fact is he speaks so fast that I don't think a lot of people are really tracking what he says, so I'll offer some analysis. Hello, Neo. Who are you? I am the architect. I created the Matrix. I've been waiting for you. You have many questions, and though the process has altered your consciousness, you remain irrevocably human. Ergo, some of my answers you will understand, and some of them you will not. Concordantly, while your first question may be the most pertinent, you may or may not realize it is also the most irrelevant. Why am I here? 
Your life is the sum of a remainder of an unbalanced equation inherent to the programming of the Matrix. You are the eventuality of an anomaly which, despite my sincerest efforts, I have been unable to eliminate from what is otherwise a harmony of mathematical precision. While it remains a burden assiduously avoided, it is not unexpected and thus not beyond a measure of control, which has led you inexorably here. You haven't answered my question. Quite right. Interesting. That was quicker than the others. Others? How many? Others? What? Answer my question. The Matrix is older than you know. I prefer counting from the emergence of one integral anomaly to the emergence of the next, in which case this is the sixth version. Five ones before me. There are only two possible explanations. There were five ones before Either no one told me, or no one knows. Precisely. As you are undoubtedly gathering, the anomaly is systemic, creating fluctuations in even the most simplistic equations. Get control me! I'm gonna smash you to bits! You can't make me do anything like Choice. The problem is choice. Okay. There's a lot of stuff in there, but put simply, the architect's job is to perfect the matrix. Perfection is defined in this case as a model where all humans accept the matrix program. In a sense, computer programming is basically a mathematical equation. The equation must balance in order for the system to function properly. What the architect is saying here, though, is that the problem of choice has so deeply affected the matrix that it creates problems with even the simplest aspects of the matrix. The equation doesn't quite balance because of the problem of choice. This is going to be dealt with a lot more later on, but for right now, what the architect is saying is that the problem of choice affects the entire system. Now, the machines have somewhat devised a method for dealing with that by effectively dumping the mathematical remainder, I guess you could say the leftover junk code, into the one. But the flaw is not only systemic, it's cumulative the unbalanced remainder grows larger and larger all the time. This, I think, becomes a pretty crucial issue later on, but for now let it be said that Neo has more leftover junk code than his five predecessors. And that's something else. Neo and the viewers have been led to believe that Neo is the one. And we took that to mean he is the only one. But the architect says that, the, that Neo is the sixth one, and now we move on to... The first matrix I designed was quite naturally perfect. It was a work of art, flawless, sublime, a triumph equaled only by its monumental failure. The inevitability of its doom is apparent to me now as a consequence of the imperfection inherent in every human being. Thus I redesigned it, based on your history to more accurately reflect the varying grotesqueries of your nature. However, I was again frustrated by failure. I have since come to understand that the answer eluded me because it required a lesser mind, or perhaps a mind less bound by the parameters of perfection. Thus the answer was stumbled upon by another. 
an intuitive program initially created to investigate certain aspects of the human psyche. If I am the father of the Matrix, she would undoubtedly be its mother. The Oracle. Please. As I was saying, she stumbled upon a solution whereby nearly 99% of all test subjects accepted the program as long as they were given a choice, even if they were only aware of the choice at a near unconscious level. While this answer functioned, it was obviously fundamentally flawed, thus creating the otherwise contradictory systemic anomaly that if left unchecked might threaten the system itself. Ergo, those that refuse the program, while a minority, if unchecked, would constitute an escalating probability of disaster. This is about Zion. You are here because Zion is about to be destroyed. Its every living inhabitant terminated, its entire existence eradicated. Bullshit. Bullshit. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. But rest assured, this will be the sixth time we have destroyed it. And we have become exceedingly efficient at it. All right. The architect is saying here that the original Matrix was a utopian paradise that was forced upon all subjects. The issue here is that the subjects rejected it. Humans rejected it. The architect then says that he redesigned it based upon mankind's history. So now there's war, famine, poverty, disease, and other problems. However, and again, this is crucial, the architect outright says that this didn't work either. He then says that the Oracle found a way to kind of fudge the results. Most people will accept the program so long as they're given the superficial option to reject it. Still, that doesn't solve the entire problem. There's going to be a small but crucial percentage of people who will use their free will to reject the program. And this is what causes the mathematical anomaly that affects and permeates every single aspect of the matrix. So, to use an analogy, the system has reached a point where 1 plus 1 doesn't necessarily equal 2 anymore. One day, 1 plus 1 may equal 2.3072. The next day, 1 plus 1 may equal 2.3985. Which is to say the system is becoming more and more unbalanced, and even the simplest things are starting to show the effects of that. This iteration of the matrix is nearing the end of its life, and it's getting to the point where it needs to be restarted. So, to facilitate all of that, the machines have launched an invasion of Zion in an attempt to draw the one out and bring him before the architect so that the next phase can unfold. And speaking of the next phase... The function of the one is now to return to the source, allowing a temporary dissemination of the code you carry, reinserting the prime program. After which you will be required to select from the matrix 23 individuals, 16 female, 7 male, to rebuild Zion. Failure to comply with this process will result in a cataclysmic system crash, killing everyone connected to the Matrix, which coupled with the extermination of Zion will ultimately result in the extinction of the entire human race. You won't let it happen. You can't. You need human beings to survive. There are levels of survival we are prepared to accept. However, the relevant issue is whether or not you are ready to accept the responsibility for the death of every human being in this world. 
is interesting reading your reactions. Your five predecessors were, by design, based on a similar predication, a contingent affirmation that was meant to create a profound attachment to the rest of your species, facilitating the function of the one. While the others experienced this in a very general way, your experience is far more specific vis-a-vis -vis love. Trinity. Apropos, she entered the Matrix to save your life at the cost of her own. No. Which brings us at last to the moment of truth wherein the fundamental flaw is ultimately expressed and the anomaly revealed as both beginning and end. There are two doors. The door to your right leads to the source and the salvation of Zion. The door to your left leads back to the Matrix, to her and to the end of your species. As you adequately put, the problem is choice. But we already know what you are going to do, don't we? Already I can see the chain reaction, the chemical precursors that signal the onset of an emotion designed specifically to overwhelm logic and reason, an emotion that is already blinding you from the simple and obvious truth. She is going to die, and there is nothing you can do to stop it. Hope. It is the quintessential human delusion, simultaneously the source of your greatest strength and your greatest weakness. If I were you, I would hope that we don't meet again. We won't. So we get down to brass tacks. The architect begins explaining the rules to Neo. The architect is saying that Zion is a goner. That's non-negotiable. It's going to be destroyed, and all the rebels except for Neo are going to be killed. Neo's task is to temporarily turn his code over to the architect so that they can prepare it for the next one. After that, Neo has to choose from the Matrix several individuals to rebuild Zion. The machines can't risk allowing any rebel except Neo to live. Mankind must start all over again from scratch. The architect then threatens that if Neo doesn't cooperate with this process, the Matrix will crash, and that's going to kill everybody who's connected to it. That, combined with the destruction of Zion, basically spells the end of the human race. The architect then attempts to emotionally blackmail Neo into going along with all this. The, arch the architect says that the five previous ones were motivated by agape, a love for mankind. Ultimately, these ones didn't want to be responsible for the destruction of the human race, so they chose to cooperate with the architect. This is where Neo is different from the rest. Neo is motivated by Eros, a love for Trinity, who at that moment is getting beaten to death by an agent. So the architect presents Neo with two options. The door on the right is where Neo needs to go to save all of humanity. The one on the left is to return to the Matrix in an attempt to save Trinity. Now, the script for all of this, which the architect is working from, says that Neo must choose the door on the right so that all of this can start all over again. And as I say, Neo's predecessors went along with that script. But Neo, being guided by Eros, goes off script and chooses the door on his left so that he can attempt to rescue Trinity. And from that point on, Everything that happens next is completely unpredictable. 
The architect has no way of knowing how things are going to play out because he's riding in completely uncharted waters. Now, I got a little bit of feedback to go through here. I received another email from my old friend Fanboyamus Prime. This is dated February the 25th. The title is Punching Reality and Long Halloween. Fanboyamus Prime writes, Hey, Trennis. Yep, I'm back in action and got a pile of back to the bins to comment on, so let's get started. Gundam fight ready. Go. Anyway, one interesting thing on Long Halloween is fitting in between events that are Batman and the Monster Men and Batman and the Mad Monk. Both stories are written, penciled, and inked by Matt Wagner. They're expanded retellings of two Golden Age stories. Michael Bailey, having covered the Golden Age story for the second in Bailey's Batman podcast, and we're, I'm going to put this on pause here. Yeah, um, that much I, I knew about. Both of those actually are remakes. Now, the original version was, like you said, it was Batman... Well, I don't think it even has a an official title, but from Detective Comics number 30 and 31 from whenever, like, 1940, I think. Um, the original storyline has come to be called Batman vs. the Vampire, right? And, it, and it's basically a much, much, much simplified version of uh, uh, Batman and the Mad Monk, like you were saying. And yeah, I, I heard the episode of Bailey's Batman podcast where he talked about that. And I think I've even talked about it, not like an official review or discussion or anything like that. But I think back in my, um, what was it? Was it Red Rain? Was it Crimson? Mi it was, fuck, it was something, right? I did an episode either about Red Rain or uh, Crimson Mist. And uh, basically, the, uh, I, and actually now that I think about it, I think Red Rain is the first one. But anyhow, the, I talked about one of the reasons why it is that stories where Batman interacts with the paranormal work for me is because I loved, loved, fucking loved Batman versus the Vampire. I read it and reread it and reread it and fucking reread it again in uh, The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told. That was published like 1988 or 89. It was, I think it was one, I think 89 actually, 1989. But anyway, and that was, like I've said before, that was extremely informative to my perceptions of Batman. Um, that that graphic novel was that. Uh, it, it, I almost hesitate to call it a trade paperback because it's so much more than that. And in fact, I think it even came in a hardcover too. So there is that to consider. And I hate using the word graphic novel, but that's basically what it is. Because it's just so fucking huge. And it covered what was at the time pretty much all of Batman's 50-year history, right? And it kind of petered out a little bit in the 80s, but the uh, the Batman versus the Vampire story, it was a two-parter, and I, again, I swear to think it was Detective Comics number 30 and 31. God, I just fucking fell in love with that. And so, now I've read Batman, to bring it all back on topic with your email, I've read Batman and the Monster Men and Batman and the Mad Monk, but I, I guess I hadn't noticed that they, that they both cross over with the long Halloween. I, 
I mean, it's logical. You know, there was a point when that was uh, the long Halloween was sort of de facto was kind of part of the Batman year one oeuvre. And so, yeah, that actually makes sense. So if you're going to tell another year one story, you kind of have to account for year one and also for the long Halloween. So that actually makes a lot of sense. But like I said, it's just something that I hadn't noticed before. So I really liked it. So anyway, uh, going back to your email, though. The thing is, both limited series tie into each other as subplots from the first are finished in the second. Though I read the second one first and still enjoyed it without even having the full context of the subplots. And and actually on that I I, I got nothing I, uh, it's been so long since I've read either of them I'll just have to take your word for it. But anyway, back to your email. And somehow I have a feeling between the last two paragraphs you in, uh, you inserted you never heard of those limited series, and I just discovered they are together called uh, Batman Dark Moon Rising. So let me just put this back on pause. No, actually I had heard of Batman and the Monster Men and Batman and the Mad Monk, and that Matt Wagner did both of them. No, I heard about that. I knew about them. It's just, you have to understand, it's been so long since I read those that, I don't know, it just it wasn't uppermost in my mind whenever I was doing the uh, the long Halloween episode. So, anyhow, back to your, back to your email, though. <clears throat> anyway, I think both limited series are great and pr- probably enjoy them, and uh, obviously I did. And on long Halloween, I gotta agree, the ending is obscured and should have left... Uh, the Glinda bit out, and I, I, I'm going to put this back on pause again. Yeah, I agree with that, and I think I was actually kind of clear about that in uh, the show itself, but for those of you who haven't listened to it, basically, as I think many of you know, The Long Halloween, it has a sort of threefold ending. You, It basically end, <clears throat> ends with um, basically three characters. You've got Commissioner Gordon, Batman, and then Glinda, Harvey's, I guess, non-widow, non-ex-wife, whoever she is, right? They used to be married, basically, is what I'm saying. And so you get Commissioner Gordon. He reflects on the story and everything that's happened. You've got Batman. He reflects on the story and everything that's happened. And then you have Glenda, who has her own point of view on all this. And basically, the way I interpret it is Gordon was affected very personally, by what happened, especially to Harvey. Batman, he was also very affected by what happened to Harvey, and his manifestation of that was basically, uh, I guess, a sort of renewed zeal. You know, he basically rededicated himself to his purpose, right? Basically, he, he decided it's time to sort of, I guess, grit his teeth and basically reaffirm his mission is what I'm is, is what I'm saying here. Glenda, I think, basically got pushed off the deep end, all right? She's telling the truth as far as she knows it. In her mind, she and Harvey were the they both were the holiday killer, but that's not actually true. And I think there are reasons for that. Like I said in the show, it basically for both of them, but especially Glenda, but really for both of them to have been holiday would have required means, motive, and opportunity that neither of them had. And I didn't. I guess I didn't really get too specific about it in, in, in the episode, but just to kind of give you an example of that, how would Glinda have gotten onto the um, uh, onto the yacht? Because it was cruising around, 
and it's full of mobsters, how would Glinda, or Glinda, Gilda, my apologies, how would Gilda have gotten onto the yacht? Second, why would she have shot Alberto Falcone? Assuming that she'd studied Harvey Dent's case files, she probably would have known that everyone involved considered... Did I say Carmine? Alberto. Sorry. Why would, why would she have shot Alberto? Because everybody knew that Alberto was basically considered by everybody. The, the Maronis, the Falcones, everybody. Alberto was considered to be a civilian. He was not, so to speak, a military target. So Gilda would have had her work cut out for her getting onto the boat. She then would have had a, basically just a difficult time justifying shooting Alberto. It just doesn't make sense. All right? Now, it makes all the sense in the world if Alberto faked his own death and then jumped off, jumped off the uh, yacht and everything, but it just, otherwise, it just, nothing there really adds up. And you go on down the line. Everybody who, who dies... All of Holiday's victims, some of those you can see where, where Harvey or Gilda would have gotten off on having those people killed. There are other people, though, like the coroner. What motive would Harvey or Gilda have had for killing the coroner? It just doesn't add up. If either of them are Holiday. If Alberto is, is Holiday, yeah, all of a sudden it makes a lot of sense for him to want to kill the coroner. The coroner can say for sure whether or not the body that washed up on, on the shore is, in fact, Alberto. It fucking makes sense. Anyway, so... I guess what, what I object to, then, is less that the, the pages are there, but maybe more that people interpret Gilda going off the deep end as a legitimate confession. Now, normally, I would want to put that on... on the readers their interpretation. But the fact is, whether Loeb intended to or not, he basically cast doubt upon his own his own conclusion. He set up the premise, he concluded it, then he cast doubt on it. And that's a major fucking no-no whenever what you're doing is... It's basically a, a whodunit. Eventually, you need to say, just who the fuck done it? And there's a degree to which, yeah, he did, but then he... Like I said, he called that into question. Now... That may not have been what he intended to do. It is nevertheless what happened. And anyway, it just it's basically what it comes down to is unclear storytelling. And for those of you who, by the way, didn't listen to that episode because you're sick of me railing against Jeff Loeb, actually, I think said some very positive and encouraging things about it. I premised everything that I said that was complimentary on the proposition that Alberto Falcone is, in fact, Holiday. If it ever comes to light that he's not, that it was in fact Harvey and Gilda all along, we're going to have some serious fucking issues, not least of which being, I'm never going to pay money for a Jeff Loeb comic book ever again. Ever. Okay? His credibility with me is already pretty fucking low. That's going to be what, that's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back, though. If it ever comes out that, that Harvey Dent and Gilda were Holiday, and they're the ones who, who committed all those murders, and Alberto just basically confessed, he, he took the fall for him because he wanted everybody to respect him, or, or, or whatever. Fuck, I, I'm done. I am fucking done with Jeff Loeb. I'm out.
I'm out. I'm not going to fucking put up with that stuff anymore. All right. But like I said, we're not there yet. And the way that it is right now, I think Long Halloween's actually a really good fucking story. It's got some great art. It's got some fun action sequences. I love the mobster stuff. It, it, it works for me. The Godfather references, I love it. So, um, so if you didn't listen to that episode because you were afraid of what I might say about Jeff Loeb, that's basically the quick summary of it. You know, so I think that's all very positive stuff that I said. Again, with the caveat that it had better not come up, uh, come to light someday, that Harvey and Gilda were the killers. Because I'm fucking, I'm not buying that ever again. Anyway. To get back into Fanboy Miss Prime's email, though, as for the series I don't name and didn't like of Alan Moore, no, it wasn't Watchmen. I would have said that. Plus, I said it wasn't a superhero work. I count Watchmen in there. I've never actually read Watchmen. Not out of any distaste or anything. I never picked up a copy of the trade. Interesting talk you made after that, but trust me, it wasn't Watchmen. I won't have been embarrassed to have read Watchmen and say I had. Which probably would should be a hint as to how I felt about the series he wrote that I that I'm not willing to say by name. Damn, you must have really just fucking hated the entire premise of that thing. Anyway, get back into your email. And on Grant Morrison having a say in the electric Superman isn't my point. My point is more, there was one guy working with the Man of Steel they kind of didn't tell, and going by what I've learned, they had to redo the art for several issues of JLA when that happened, and that actually I did not know. It was more they shouldn't leave the Justice League writer in the cold on major changes to the characters in that book, or the Avengers writers for changes to Iron Man or Captain America. I never said the team book should dictate where the solo books go, just that the solo book should give the team books a heads up so they can deal with the changes. You know? You know what? Yeah, I'll, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just, I'm, I'm going to roll with that. Yeah, fine. Um, I can see where instances where that could go wrong, but you know what? That's all completely fucking hypothetical. Why, why argue around the margins about problems that honestly don't even fucking exist right now so anyway get back into your email and as and as how the last few paragraphs have gone i believe you you don't have to worry about me being quiet when you mistook what i said believe me no i don't oh i have no problem that dc has the vertigo line and a mature readers line i might knock how mature it exactly was at at times but i don't disrespect i don't disrespect the writers and artists that used to that use that freedom to experiment and tell the stories they wanted to I'm just annoyed they wanted to keep Swamp Thing or Doom Patrol or anyone else when it was part of the line and other DC characters away from the main line. All right, that's kind of a preferential thing. I, I can't really argue that with you really one way or the other. The Vertigo books not connected with those titles don't apply to that. I just mean for the DC characters that were in the Vertigo books and Tim Hunter, who was tied uh, to those characters and had Zatanna in his book, needed to be treated as they were part of the DCU and not in their own personal Phantom Zone. Hmm. <sighs> you know, I'll be honest with you. I'm putting your your email on pause. I'll be honest with you. you know, like, part of me, like, I agree with you that we do have. There is supposed to be a, a DC universe, a supposedly cohesive DC universe, and to me, it's one of those things that I guess it works okay as long as you don't think about it too much. But, you know, strictly speaking, what we're supposed to think is that all of these characters and all of these stories and all that shit all happens within the same universe within a, a reasonable approximate amount of time to one another. And <sighs> so, yeah, I mean, on that basis, I can see why you would want to have 
those characters not segmented off and and you have basically the vertigo line establishing hegemony over characters that really by all rights they don't they don't have any kind of moral claim to that so that i get but on the other hand i don't know i mean it's just you know what maybe the real compromise i guess to you know just to kind of put it all out there maybe the real compromise here would have been to have to sort of treat the vertigo line the same way that Marvel treats their 616 universe versus Max, right? Where I think each Max book is its own unique thing. The Max books don't even relate to one another. They, but each Max book, you can basically think of it, it, it it's its own uh, immaculate universe, right? And, and it has characters common to 616, but they're not, as far as continuity and, and just, just canonically, they're not, they are not the same characters, Canonically. Now, obviously, and I guess in the more universal sense, yes, they are, but they each have their own continuity and they really have nothing to do with each other. Fuck it, maybe that was the way to go. But, you know, I, I'm saying that now with the benefit of hindsight. The industry has changed so much since then that something like that, this bullshit scenario I just threw out, who's to say something like that would have even been possible back then, you know? So I don't know. But I'm just saying that, honestly, I can I, I can see it both ways, and maybe that's just the better way to put it. So, so moving on, getting back into your email, and I don't think I've run into many goth people in my life. Not that I have any problems with them at all. Of course, the only tattoo I even dream of having is the same one Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow got on their arm. So basically, it ties back into things I like. I'm going to put this back on pause. Honestly, I don't really have a big a, a big problem with goth people either. Uh, and to be honest with you, I mean, I can't believe I'm about to admit to something like this, but I actually kind of have a thing for goth chicks. I actually think they're kind of hot. Always did. And if I if I had to guess, I think the reason for that is I saw Superman 2 a lot when I was a kid. And let's face it, Ursa, or Ursa is she's Ursa is kind of gothy in that in that movie, you know, and. If I had to guess, I would say that's kind of where my thing for goth chicks picks up. And in fact, it's kind of funny where it's coming up now. Basically, apart from superheroes, I sort of have three things that I respond to in in movies, right? I call it the trifecta, right? I like kung fu fights. If you put if you make a movie that has a shitload of kung fu fights in it, Fuck it, I'm there. I'm there. I love it. I love martial arts fights. Like movie-style martial arts fights. I love that stuff. Alright? Next. Giant fucking robots. I love giant fucking robots. You put giant fucking robots into a movie? Dude, I... I'm probably gonna like it just on simple fucking principle. Right? And the next thing, the third... The third element here is that kind of fetishy, gothy thing. I, there's a look for it, I'm sure, but I don't know exactly what to call it. But, you know, lots of piercings and lots of eyeliner and, you know, blackened out hair, black makeup, all that stuff. I just like that look, just visually. And, you know, goth, fetish, whatever it's called this week, you know, with the leather and everything. I really like that look, you know. And so when I really think back on it, I just went through a really kind of long-winded explanation a little while ago about 
all the reasons that the Matrix works for me. But let's face it, it's got shitloads of kung fu fights, it's got shitloads of giant fucking robots, and it's got shitloads of goth chicks running around in tight leather and stuff. So, I gotta tell ya, maybe those are the things that I responded to. So, I'm man enough to admit that. But anyway, yeah, no, it's not that I have a problem with them, it's just that it was kind of trendy in the 90s that you would find... I'm going to try to find a nice way to put it, but you would find, I guess, certain subcultures attracted to comic book stores simply because of what, for the first time, was being marketed, right? So maybe back in the 80s, it was primarily superhero stuff, you know, which for as much as I think a lot of us enjoy Watchmen, let's face it, it is a superhero story. Whereas things like Sandman and really all of the DC Vertigo books kind of had different values motivating them, right? And they appealed to a completely different audience. Well, that fucking audience showed up and they bought those books. I mean, things like Fables, Sandman, um, I think the Books of Magic and all that Tim Hunter shit, you know, all of that stuff. And what that ended up doing, though, it you, you basically had these situations, and I don't want to make it sound like all outsiders where... You know, there was a big rumble outside with Pony Boy and Soda Pop, but basically you had this sort of clashing together of geeks with goths, and there is really not as much overlap there as you might first think. You know, and so the goths kind of had this sort of snooty, superior attitude that, you know, and you could just fucking see it on their faces, right? They saw that you were getting the new Superboy, right? Or, fuck, I don't remember. What else was coming up? Uh, the, whatever, Wolverine, X-Men, whatever. Whatever you, were, you, you got, you, you, you went to the, uh, to the store to get, and they just had this fucking just smug, I'm, you know, I'm so fucking superior because of what I read and versus what you read. You're a dork and all that kind of bullshit. And I know I'm not the only one who feels this way, but... Honestly, I mean, I just, I kind of fucking resented it, you know? I mean, look, at the time I was in junior high, I had plenty of people looking down their nose at me, believe me. And, you know, now I have to go to, like, a comic book shop, one of the few fucking places in the entire world where I can go and fit in, and now I have to put up with that bullshit there, too? I mean, fuck, come on, man. Anyway, and so, and that was just the way that things were. Now, I'm not saying that all goth people were like that. Fuck, I'm not even saying that all goth comic book fans were like that. I'm just saying there was a certain subsection, a niche within a niche within a niche, I guess you could say, that they kind of had this snooty attitude about it. You know, fuck you. You know, I'm... I mean, look, I realize that on some level we all kind of play these games of equivalence where, you know what... Maybe I'm not, maybe, you know, maybe I'm not the most normal person in the world as the world reckons normalcy and all this stuff. Maybe I've got my share of hang-ups and all this stuff, but at least I'm not this other fucking weirdo in the comic book store. And dude, I get that, okay? Because, I mean, I, I realize that's probably the only thing that keeps some of us from going completely fucking crackers and then firebombing something, all right? Dude, I get that. All right, but what we all have to kind of realize here is that when push comes to shove... That that creepy-looking goth chick covered in tats and stuff who fucking is obsessed with her Sandman trade paperbacks and all that stuff, she's really not all that different from me when you come right down to it, right? And so...
I don't know. I mean, it's just it, the, I'm I'm just saying that the the intellectual uh, realization of that doesn't alter the fact that I'm sorry. I don't like it when people look down their fucking nose at me. All right. Now maybe it's just the fact that I'm, I am American and I'm one of the one of the organizing principles of American society has been, you're not better than me. We're all the same here. We're all the same. And look, I freely admit that maybe that's that that's my problem. You know that I and especially as I live in Texas. I mean, God, it, everybody has that attitude around here. What you think you're better than me? And honestly, I mean, I've met people who think, dude, I will admit that you're better than me if you if you and I go outside and you kick my ass. But other than that. Keep your mouth shut, you know? And so, I, I, dude, I completely understand. Well, anyway, I'm digging a hole here. So I'm just going to get back into the email. All right. Fanboy Miss Prime writes, You want Marvel's version of a bunch of DC stuff? Okay, let's go then. For Why the Last Man? There really is no Marvel version of that. Of course, nowadays, Why the Last Man would have been done at Image. I'm going to put this on pause and say, you know what? I am not convinced of that. I mean, it, these days it is a very image type of book, but honestly, I don't know that I totally believe that. Oh, hold on, let me let me rephrase that. Now that the Vertigo line has actually been incorporated into the mainstream DCU, actually, yeah, on that basis, you're probably right. But prior to new, excuse me, prior to new uh, to the New 52, before uh, I guess back before the Vertigo line got forcibly integrated. You know what? I think. Right up until the the bitter fucking end, that was a Vertigo book. And even if it's not, that's not the point. The point is that Vertigo was the place to go for stuff like that. What Image is now is what Vertigo was doing back then. Image basically... They had a shtick, and they ran that shit into the ground. And what they eventually had to realize is that, you know what? People are not buying our shit anymore in the same numbers as, as they used to. The speculator boom came, the speculator boom went, and now we have to start just selling some fucking comics. All right? What they realized is they have got to start developing stories. They have got to start developing characters. They've got to accept creators that have something to say. And I, for, I don't for one minute think that in fact, you know what? I'll go the other way with that. I'll say, if it wasn't for Vertigo, Image Comics, as we know it, would have gone out of business in 1998, 1999, no later than that. There would be no Walking Dead. There would be no Morning Glories. There would, uh, none of that shit would be out there right now. And so, honestly, as far as just like the culture and everything that Image Comics has become, you can draw a very fucking straight line from that back to DC Vertigo. I believe it. Anyway. To get back into your email, though. For Dark Knight Returns, I'd have to say Alan Davis's Fantastic Four, The End. It, it, is, it, it isn't exactly the same, but I still think he did an interesting story worth reading. I'm going to put this back on pause and say, you know what, dude? As true as that may be, not the point. The point is that Dark Knight Returns transcended comics. It transcended even Batman, which back in 1986, lest we forget, that was an interesting trick to manage. Because Batman, to most people, meant Adam West. It would it, at that point it had only been 20 years since the Adam West show was on TV. The kids that were kids when the Adam West show was on TV were now adults, and they had their worlds rocked by The Dark Knight Returns, and it got mainstream attention. Now, honestly, I'm sure Alan Davis's Fantastic Four: The End. I'm sure it's a good story. A lot of those The End stories are, and honestly, I I can't really factually dispute you anywhere really, except to say that. The Dark Knight Returns isn't simply 
tasters blend among comic book fans. This is like comics best kept secret. That's not what Dark Knight Returns ever was. I think from the get-go, that was on mainstream media radar. All right, that's how important this is. And as good as Alan Davis's Fantastic Four thing might be, it's just not. It isn't. So I understand the point you're trying to make. I just, I'm sorry, don't take this the wrong way. I just fucking, I don't buy it. Anyway, get back in your email. For Crisis on Infinite Earths, that's a trick question. Marv, uh, Marvel's never had to scrap their multiverse like DC did. If you want a multiverse-spanning series, there is Exiles. I'm going to put this back on pause and say... I didn't make that point very well, so I'm not going to argue your point here. I, I guess more what I meant was that I think Crisis on Infinite Earths is the biggest, the most epic comic book story that there's ever been told. And for the minute, forget about what it was supposed to do, which is basically unify all of the, uh, the multiverse, really. Unify the multiverse into one single universe. For, that was what it was ultimately supposed to do. The story and the plot and the characters, it, those are all just a means to an end. For the moment, put that aside. The story itself is... I would go so far as to say is, you know, putting aside the fact that I think that the long-term impact of Crisis on Infinite Earths has shown itself to be negative, the story itself is the greatest, or I don't actually, I don't want to say that, one of the greatest comic book stories that's ever been written. The art, the story, the characters, the, everything. Everything about Crisis on Infinite Earths fucking rocks. And again, this is one of those things, to a lesser degree, but to, but it, it, this is one of those things that it did get mainstream attention. It's like, wow, big things fucking happen in the DC universe. And it's one thing for the mainstream media to sit up and take notice of just how fucking big this story is. But, the, but the, that other thing I just mentioned, the fact that it kind of proved that, you know what? DC Comics ain't a bitch, all right? You guys with your little Marvel comics and everything, that's cute. Big things happen over here too, guys. Come come take a look. I bet we'll change your mind, you know? And there was, there is a sense in which that was kind of DC throwing down the gauntlet as far as the types of stories that could be told. Now, like you say, Marvel never had to scrap their multiverse. And that much is true. But that's that was what Crisis on Infinite Earths was meant to accomplish. And there's there's a sense in which you can argue how well really it ended up doing that. But putting that aside, I'm just talking about as a story, I don't think Marvel has anything that can stack up to that. Now, having said that, I'm, I, I've never read Exile, so I'm, I'm, there's a sense in which I'm kind of speaking out of my ass here a little bit. But I'm just saying that I've never heard anything from Marvel's side easily compared to Crisis on Infinite Earths. And that's just, that's just the way I feel about it. So anyway, getting back into your email. Amusingly, there is something similar to Panic in the Sky. The one thing you, neither you nor Dan Jurgens mentioned as the one kind of regret of the story, being it, it was similar in tone of the heroes taking it to the interstellar bad guys like the Avengers did in Operation Galactic Storm. Though that was merely a case of bad timing. I'm going to put this shit back on pause and say, you know what? It actually did cross my mind to bring that up whenever I had uh, Dan Jurgens on the show. But number one, I only had uh, 30 minutes to talk to him, right? And I didn't I, – I, basically, I had to pick, pick my moment any time that he and I talked. And really what I, wanted, what I wanted for that show was for him to talk. I mean, you guys listen to me talk all the time. I don't know how many of you have ever heard an interview with Dan Jurgens before. Not that I had an interview. He and I had a conversation. It was not an interview. But anyway, I don't know how many of you had ever heard Dan Jurgens speak about any of this stuff. But 
it felt to me like obviously that's going to be the franchise of that episode. And so what I need to do the minute I'm on the line with him is shut the fuck up and let him talk about whatever he wants to talk about. Go wherever he wants to go. And hopefully my readers or readers, my listeners are going to understand. So one of the things, though, that I did think about mentioning was Operation Galactic Storm. But honestly, I think that's probably something he's heard a lot about over the years. And it's one of those things that they came out so close to one another. I think it's kind of hard to argue that there was any kind of intentionality there. Like you say, that that was a case of bad timing. I absolutely agree with that. But the reason I didn't bring it up is because, well, like I said, I mean, I wanted him to, to kind of guide the conversation more than me. And then what I would do is basically, you know, when the conversation started to lull, toss in one of my questions that was basically as on topic as I could make it. So anyway... To get back in your email, as for Marvel never making a book like Hellblazer, wrong! They did it. It was called Hellstorm and was the book about Damon Hellstrom, the son of Satan. You might want to read it if you're into Hellblazer. And to be honest with you, I'm actually not. I've never read Hellblazer, which is not to say I'm anti-Hellblazer. I'm not. Just never read it. Maybe, And in fact, I probably will someday. And probably for this show, but I haven't read it yet. Back to your email. As for a book like Doom Patrol, um, Magnus, that's called The X-Men. Marvel can claim they got their version to come back from more or less obscurity to becoming a titanic juggernaut. And if you mean the media celebrity team of Doom, Doom Patrol, well, well, around the same time Marvel had Peter Milligan's X-Force and later became the X-Statics. <clears throat> right, dude, are you fucking serious? The X-Statics? Gee, that's a terrible fucking title. Anyway, well, around the same time, Marvel had Peter Milligan's X-Force that had a similar idea, and I think stands on its own more than that Doom Patrol run did. Not saying Doom, the, the Doom Patrol run is bad, as I enjoyed it as well. Now, actually, on that, I'll defer to you. If you say so, I'll take your word for it. Anyway, now, to get back into your email, where is DC's version of G.I. Joe, a real American hero? Admittedly, the doing, the doing as well as it did is a bit surprising as Larry Hama was the only one willing to do that title, but he did one hell of a job with it. I'm going to put this on pause and say, number one, I don't think that there is a DC equivalent of G.I. Joe, a real American hero. And number two, I don't necessarily see that as a big loss. That leads into number two. I've read a little bit of G.I. Joe, a real American hero, and I understand... I can see, I'll put it this way, I, I can see why it is that people love it so much. And I guess far be it from me to judge, but it just didn't grab me. You know, like sometimes you read a comic book that everyone's all talking up and everything, and you see it too. You're like, oh my god, this is the greatest thing since the last greatest thing. Oh man, this is just fucking awesome. Oh, look at this. And then, oh, and, and then this character does that. Oh, this is fucking awesome. And honestly, I just don't, I don't see that with uh, G.I. Joe, a real American hero. I'm not saying it's bad. I just, I don't understand why people just sprayed their shorts over it. Anyway, not bad-mouthing it. I'm certainly not going to bad-mouth a badass like Larry Hama. That guy's fucking awesome. But like I said, I just I don't, I don't see what the hype's all about, you know? So anyway, back to the email. Not trying to bad-mouth DC or that it had a diverse array of comics in the 80s and 90s, but Marvel wasn't exactly without their hits and such. Hell, they brought out... Sorry. Hell, they bought out DC in the, er, in the early to mid-80s, going on how well they were doing. It got stopped because people believed Marvel had a monopoly, and that's never a good time to buy out your major competitor. I'm going to put this on pause and say, you know what? That's one of those things that I'm aware of and everything, and I kind of think, you know, fate took a hand on that one. 
and kept the company separate because I, I I think that's when the companies are at their best, you know, when they're separated from one another. But honestly, DC was really struggling in the early to mid '80s, and they kind of always have because you know tastes change over time. And there was a point when DC's brand of science fairy tale was the zeitgeist of comics, and by well, hell, you could argue it was definitely before the early 80s, but certainly by the early 80s. They'd sort of reached a point where it's like, guys, what the fuck's left, you know? And I think it's one of those things where the British invasion kind of helped them out. And basically, the DC line needed the rejuvenation that British writers ended up bringing. Now, again, it's kind of like Crisis on Infinite Earths. I think the long-term legacy of that has kind of been a little bit of a mixed bag, but at least in the short term, you got some amazing fucking stories out of it. Alan Moore, by himself, was sort of a cottage industry for DC for a lot of years there. And it kind of felt like, and I guess maybe this is the point, in the early to mid-80s, Marvel had market dominance. Well, let me, actually, you know what, let me take that back. They've always had, or usually they've had market dominance. But what I'm saying is, they were the, they were the preference of fans, comic book collectors, and people like that. But as far as obtaining mainstream recognition and success and things like that, honestly, the 80s really... De- in fact, I would say that, that comics in general belong to DC in terms of getting Joe Everyman to read them. But especially in the 80s and in the 90s, I mean... Marvel just didn't have the same transcendent value, basically, is what I'm saying. So I'm not going to argue which of them is the is the which of the two comics companies is more popular among fans. I think this is one of those things that guys, history's kind of spoken, you know. And Marvel is is the more popular pu- uh, publisher if if market dominance is anything to go by. So. You know, the jury's in on that. But as far as being able to transcend into the mainstream, guys, it begins and ends with DC. Sorry. Anyway, so getting back into the email. The thing about Fear itself is that the story has literally destroyed any impact it had. The follow-up miniseries did every, undid every and the Defenders series that came afterward literally made it so it never happened in the first place. Now, I'm going to put this back on pause and say... That I did not know. I basically finished up with the main Fear Itself series, and then that was it. I really didn't stick around much for any of the follow-ups, and I definitely did not read that part of the uh, Defenders run where they, as you as you say, literally made it so it never happened in the first place. Totally went by me. So if you say so, I'll believe it. But I'll still speak up for Fear Itself in the sense that it was a big story, and at least at the time that you're reading it, it really fucking does feel important. It feels like, you know, the fate of the world legitimately is at stake. Now, is this something that Marvel crossovers generally deal with? Well, in my mind, no. To me, Marvel events are mostly defined by heroes fighting each other. Because the conflicts in in the Marvel Universe, I don't usually associate them as being you know, galactic showdowns between good and evil. I I just don't see it that way. I always thought of Marvel Universe as being the place where worldviews conflict with one another. And so that's why you have hero fighting hero. It actually fucking makes sense. And that's 
when I finally do start talking about Civil War, you guys may be very fucking surprised to hear what I have to say about it. And so that's another episode for another time, though. And so even though I kind of find fear itself to basically deal in conflicts and and things that really I don't readily associate with Marvel Comics, I still enjoy it from the angle that it, it really is a big story. And I just, as much as anything, I just fucking love the art. Because honestly, you know, if you read the story, it it really is kind of fucking thin. It's a thin story. But the art in that main series, oh my god, it's just so good. Now, having said all of that, one of the tie-ins that I do remember reading was the Spider-Man Fear Itself tie-in. And... To me, you know, you hear people talk shit about Todd McFarlane's Torment storyline. Like, to this day, people make fun of that. To me, that Spider-Man Fear Itself miniseries is everything that people say Todd McFarlane's Torment story is. That's it. It was just long, boring, fucking pointless, and honestly, fucking nothing happened. Alright? And, yeah, that same kind of thing can be said of Torment, I guess, but... I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's one thing that Torment came out at, really, I would say, the armpit of the speculator era of comics. The Fear Itself Spider-Man thing, that came out, what, like three years ago? I mean, shit. Anyway, so, whatever, but my point is, you know, the main series, I just, I rather enjoyed it. Yes, it's it's kind of unmarvel, to be sure, but I still, I liked it, so, whatever. Anyway, get back in the email. Anyway, what I meant was, not why you cover the big book of whatever, it was why it's labeled as such for the episode, as it really, really when it was such a small part of it. The interplay between you and Chris is always interesting, so I enjoy it a great deal. I'm going to put this back on pause and say, I have to call the episodes something, and so I just decided to use the big book report, you know? And um, the fact is, those books are actually very well titled because they are big books. I mean, we're talking about almost 200 pages long in a lot of cases. I think over 200 pages in some other cases. And so when he and I talk about these things, what we end up having to do is basically just pick out a couple of items from each book. I get a couple, he gets a couple, and then we talk about those. Because there's no way that we can go through everything in, every, in, uh, in those big books and, and do everything justice. And so... It's an imperfect compromise, but it's it's basically it's the best that we can do. And what ends up happening is that just in the you know just in the course of having conversation, as I'm obviously as you know, we end up going off on all kinds of fucking just wild tangents. And that's to me that's why it works. And so you know I understand what you said, and I hope I didn't come off you know defensive when I answered that last time, or for that matter, I hope I'm not coming off as defensive now. But about any of this, by the way, not just this one point, but all about all of this. I hope I'm, I hope you don't feel like I'm being uh, defensive with you. But anyway, the um, that's he and I have kind of locked into a a format and a formula that I think works. And so, you know, I'm so I guess first of all, thank you. I appreciate the fact that you know you're that you're paying me these compliments, and and I'm also happy that you're enjoying the shows and everything. But I also hope this kind of gives you a little bit of. Uh, a little bit of um, understanding about just what he and I are up against whenever he and I do these kinds of store uh, these kinds of episodes, right? Because it really is sort of a pain in the ass to keep everything. First of all, just to limit everything down to like two or three stories that he and I uh, want to talk about, and then from there, 
staying on topic with just those stories or staying on topic as much as we can with those ideas and those themes and everything. And so it's actually a little trickier to do than you might think. And, you know, Chris is a, he's obviously a pretty smart guy and he has a perspective on things that's very different from mine in ways obvious and not so obvious. And so one of the reasons that attracted me to him uh, coming in on those shows was the fact that he and I are going to, we're both going to find this interesting, but probably for different reasons. And so I felt like there were going to be moments where he and I had could have these sort of point and counterpoint discussions. Now, as it turns out, he and I agree actually on a lot more things than I thought we would, to be honest with you. But yeah, and so, like I said, I mean, I just, I think he and I have kind of hit upon a really nice thing. And um, I'm really, I'm really enjoying it. And, and I'm obviously, I'm very happy that you're enjoying it. And so... I guess that's really not uh, not much else I, I, I can put in on that. So anyway, to get back into uh, your email, though, as for the uh, figure taken hostage, I believe that was a 12-inch Power Team Elite action figure. Think your Big Lots version of G.I. Joe for your t- for 12-inch and 3.75-inch action figures, so three and a quarter inch action figures. Good toys and can uh, fit the head of the family, the head of the really cheap guys, which are chap my on the bodies of the PTE guys if you say so yes toy customization is yet another one of my hobbies but mostly it was with Transformers and G.I. Joe I'm going to put this back on pause you know there are people out there that I mean dude you talk about a niche within a niche within a niche I mean fuck me dude toy customization so and I don't mean that from the point of view of making fun of you I'm saying that you know that's just that's a sort of sort of esoteric hobby i mean you're that's esoteric within esoteric within esoteric so you know believe me i'm not i'm not criticizing you i just i think that's really fucking cool when it's done well that is i think it's actually really fucking cool so anyway glad you like my emails and expect to see more of them i do and i can't wait to read more because like i said you always have this different perspective on things and you always have like kind of like chris himself actually another dimension to stuff that i hadn't considered and so that's god that's just why i love these emails and especially like this like this email is pretty long and i just love it because you know there's so fucking much here to talk about i mean look at this thing this thing is just fucking huge anyway so that's a compliment so by all means keep the long ones coming because there's just so fucking much to talk about here i love it love it love it love it so i think that's basically it uh this time out so um, if any of you want to get in touch with me, uh, feel free. You can reach me at uh, trentusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. Now, bear in mind, anything that you send to me in an email, I'm going to read uh, on mine. The exception to that is going to be if you specifically say, don't read this on mic, and then I won't. I, I, I can respect your confidentiality when you ask for it. But I can't just assume that someone doesn't want their correspondence to be read. So if you send something to me, people, be advised, it's probably going to be read on mic unless you say so. And then, and then it definitely will not be read on mic. So again, email address is trentusmagnus at gmail.com, T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. You can also... Uh, uh, file reviews for me on iTunes and I people I need those I need more iTunes reviews so if you could 
You can uh, search for me in iTunes. Look for Two True Freaks presents Trennis Magnus Punches Reality and file your reviews there. And as with email, all iTunes reviews are going to be read on mic as well. So just keep that in mind. So, of course, it's already viewable to the public to begin with. So I assume if you're willing to put it in writing to where anybody can read it, odds are you're probably not going to have any objection to it being read on mic, but nevertheless. So, other than that, I think that's basically it this month, so I just want to thank Fanboy Miss Prime for taking the time to write into me. And honestly, for taking the time just to even listen. You know, because, honestly, so much of this stuff, so much of my content, especially lately, but certainly in episodes to come, I think, revolves around email and uh, just participation and feedback from my listeners. And so... Guys, just thank you very much. I really appreciate all of you taking the time to write in. I appreciate that. And it just, it means a lot to me. So thank you very much. And thank you, Fanboy MS Prime in particular, for uh, taking the time to email me and and listen to the show and send in all your feedback and all that stuff. I, I really do appreciate it. Okay, so I think that's about it for the Matrix sequels. Now, of all the shows that I've ever done, I'm I'm really interested in, in feedback for this one. So let me know what you think. Whether you agree or disagree with what I've said, I really want to know where you stand here. So email trennismagnus at gmail.com. Let me know where you stand. As for next week, come back for that because I'll be finishing up my movie sequel series by talking all about the Karate Kid Part 3. You think I had a lot to say about The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions? Dude, you ain't heard nothing yet. So, I think that's about it. Bye, everybody. See you next week. You know, a dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. (laughs) 
One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am, or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, The Sworn Testimony of a Dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. from the disparate reaches of geekdom here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled Ryan the toy geek Scott the award winning radio host Jeff Scott's minion and Ron just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. On May 30th, 2011, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles. And the internet broke in half. No. No. It's not true. That's impossible. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths, heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions. He likes it. He likes it. Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster. Now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky. Speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The new 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month 
on iTunes and at new52superman.libson.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me. And I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.